we lost sight of a couple of really simple things that we were born with. And one of them is the capacity to feel and to be in the present. And one of them is choosing not to be sort of dragged away by our mental habits and mind. Well, the fact is we just think too much. And thinking often leads to anxiety and unsolvable problems. And if you can understand that basic principle. Instead of thinking about your problems, you need to feel them. What is it that I'm actually looking for? Do we really know life? Sure. But let me say intelligence. Emotional intelligence, social intelligence, financial intelligence. So I believe it's important for each and every one of us to understand the rules that govern any arena of your life. You are listening to the Revenge of the Forsaken Gods, a podcast that explores the human experience and seeks to create a blueprint for a living using books, stories, movies, and conversations. And here is your host, Andrew Balongo Opere. Yes, welcome to the Revenge of the Forsaken Gods. This is Andrew Balongo Opere, and this podcast seeks to explore all those things that your parents didn't teach you, school didn't teach you, nor society, so that you can live life on your own terms. And I'm very excited because today's guest has uh, coached judges, lawyers, a princess, members of parliament, and even ordinary people from all over the world, from Australia, Kenya, India, and, and very many other parts of the world. And I decided I needed to bring this lady on so that we can uh, unlock her wisdom because I want to find out the deeper questions behind the conversations around men, around women. What is it that holds us back? What is it that takes us forward? So uh, my guest is a psychic and she's a psychotherapist, a teacher and a healer. And she teaches very many courses uh, from mysticism to parenting and leadership. And she even reached the point where she developed her own process that she calls the kinesthetic process. And what this does is it prepares you, it gives you the proper tools to actually change your habits, your patterns, your behaviors, and your outlook on life. Now, she wasn't always this way, and uh, we'll uh, be able to talk a little bit about her history, where she started off as a singer, a very talented singer who ran away from home, and just before her big gig, life changed and started her healing process. So without further ado, let me introduce all the way from Australia, who loves Kenyan culture, Liz Waters, welcome. Hello, Andrew. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you very much. So I'm honored uh, to have you here because, uh, you know, you could have been uh, spending your time with members of parliament, judges, but you're here with, uh, with the regular people like me and uh, ev anyone who's listening. And uh, yes, I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, please tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up and, uh, you know, how does someone transform from being a musician? Why did you run away from home? <laughs> and uh, transform into this healer who's impacting lives? Well, um, yeah, I grew up in the country in rural Australia. My father was a school teacher and my mother was a nurse, as you said. And uh, we had, I had six siblings, all girls, well, seven daughters. And um, it was uh, like a tribe, you know. I think that was one of the reasons why I love being in Africa so much is because 
I grew up in a kind of tribal environment and certainly nuclear family isn't sort of um, quite like that. So I, um, yeah, I feel I can connect on some level. So, um, yeah, I kind of got towards the end of high school and I started to get really restless and was looking for something bigger in life and uh, felt that my father was oppressing me, you know how we do, and um, I felt that he was controlling me and uh, just wanted to go and be a singer. So I ran away from home just before the final exams and I joined a band. <laughs> and I um, travelled around with the band for a while and already kind of got thrown in the deep end with that because I had a child at 20. Uh, my first daughter was born when I was 20, and uh, that was right at the beginning of my music career. I kind of managed to find my way back into music, and just as we were about to release our first single and get all the big gigs we'd been wanting and go on TV and do all that stuff, I was run over. And um, looking at that symbolically, it seemed to be something that was meant to help me understand that I needed to take more agency in my life and to set myself on a proper course and maybe utilize skills and gifts that I might have suspected I had but didn't know for sure. I mean, it broke my heart to leave music because it took two years to fix my teeth and my face and whatever, and the band fell apart and my career fell apart. So it broke my heart and it took a while to recover, but I went on to the path of a healer by studying remedial therapies and um, herbalism, shiatsu, all sorts of things, and started working in that way. And as I did, I realized that um, something I'd known that I'd always had, which was um, sort of an insight into people at a deep level, started to surface through massage and, and body work because when you're working on people's body, you often get a lot of images and messages and feelings and sensations from them. Um, and then you've got to know what to do with it, you know. So I started to think, well, I need to develop this, you know. And um, so I started to look into that. Um, as I was saying to you before, I needed to figure out how because there's not a lot of people to teach you this stuff. You know, there's very few people. And you can look into spiritual elements to help you develop um, stuff that I teach, like the basis of some of what I teach is integrity and wholeness and compassion and responsibility and love. And all those things are sort of the bottom line to give you a, a background so you can develop spiritual gifts and skills with the, with the responsible outlook. Um, so I, I looked into all that. I looked at Hinduism and Buddhism and I did meditation and yoga and you know, pretty much what everyone does these days. Um, went to a psychiatrist, went to um, personal development courses. And um, there was a course back then called EST, which has now evolved and changed and been unsold and developed into something called Landmark Forum, which you have in Kenya. And EST in those days was pretty raw, but it was pretty good. I mean, there was a lot of things wrong with it, but it was great. And, it's, and it helped reinforce some of my own understandings. And, um, yeah, I mucked along as a healer and sort of doing intuitive work for a while and then suddenly thought I'd like to develop my intellect. So I suddenly went and you know, decided to do a Bachelor of Arts in Communications at the um, University of Technology and... Uh, studied, uh, majored in video production and uh, writing and that led me in a way that sort of led me to Africa because I was, I was uh, desperate for life experience and I was a musical person so Africa drew me in that way and I sort of felt like our culture was very limited, our white culture was stiff and too many taboos and 
too many unspoken things and too much living in your head and too much acquisitiveness and materialism. All of that, I imagined, was different in, in Africa. So I went to Kenya, went on a six-week trip around East Africa and picked up a whole passion for it that I've never lost. <laughs> so, yeah, then, you know, as, as I was... Um, as I was doing that, I sort of felt like I had to start going back to Africa and maybe living there. So I started, spent a year in Nairobi, met a lot of people, did a lot of dancing. <laughs> it was back when Carnival was pumping. <laughs> <laughs> and um, did a, a bit of traveling around and made a lot of videos for, for safari companies and um, I wrote a book, but it you know, didn't get published, but it was something to help me consolidate my experience. Um, and meanwhile, I was encouraged by friends and people I knew to develop my spiritual gifts, so I started working on that. And I, I suppose, you know, what was interesting about our chat before was that you asked me how I sort of knew or what, what evolved that in me. It was like I'd had it all my life, and I just didn't know what it was, you know. I, I just didn't... Um, have any language to explain it and nobody else did either and I was raised a Christian in a normal sense like not in a particularly strong way but you know Christian values and there was nothing in that that would show me <laughs> and, um, and my father was very eclectic he actually went to a spiritualist church himself and did some uh, energy healing for some years which was interesting but I never knew about that till later <laughs> I didn't know what he was up to and um, so this thing became like an urge. It was like this thing inside me that I thought, why am I seeing things that other people don't un sort of see? Or why am I considered to be somewhat of an intense personality? Or why is it that I know how something is going to evolve or out the outcome of something, but I don't have any way to say that to somebody because that would be intrusive and violate their privacy and, you know, so I realized that if you wanted, if I wanted to use this stuff that I picked up, you know, and develop while I was doing body work as well, I'd need to find a, a format and a way to explain it and to get myself some permission so that I could um, legitimately give people what I've, whatever I was seeing. And I think my deepest urge was always to help people change. I don't know where that comes from, but it's the basis of my nature. It just is. And... So that's why I've done all this work creating things to help people change. Wow, wow, that's very powerful. And uh, wow, um, you know, there's that whole journey, even though you've, you, you've mentioned this journey like within five minutes, that's like years of experience. And you know what, I'm, I, I'd like us to go forward before going back to really unpack um, the experiences you had that shaped you to be the person who you are today. Um, so what is it that your clients come to you for? Like what are the three big things when people come to you for um, uh, that they say like, you know, Liz, this is what's going on in my life. And then you said that your skill is you can see the things that they cannot see, you know, especially the thought processes and, you know, what they're saying. Um, so what is it that they tell you, this is the issue, this is why I'm coming to you, but what is revealed to you, and then just the process of guiding them uh, towards the answers they need? Okay. 
Well, there's two things. There's, they come to me for basically uh, either therapy or psychic work. And my psychic work, I call it a soul path reading or, you know, a soul journey. So people come on for that. They come for uh, an understanding of their higher self, the self that they hope is their real self. Uh, the spiritual self they have they want an understanding of all the mysterious things that have happened to them and the karma and the reasons why they ended up where they are and you know maybe they want to connect with people who've departed or they want to know the answer to a difficult question like will I have a child or you know can I why don't I succeed in my career all of these things I can talk to on a soul level so I look at the soul of the person and I give them a very complex story about who they are where they've come from what the reason that, that they're here for and how they've evolved that through maybe other lives or this life and how it's working now. So that gives them a sort of grounding in a sense that all the things they kind of hoped were true about themselves are the good things, you know, that I can see them too. And all the sort of feeling that there is a spiritual world that you're part of, that, that kind of feels very real in the reading, like everybody feels like they've been validated in their spiritual quest. And then the sort of guidance that comes through there is about how to deal with um, the things that have come up in their lives. Like a lot of the time people come for either it's something like depression and anxiety or a repeated illness, or it might be that they can't get over something. They've lost someone or they've broken a marriage or whatever and they can't get over it. Or, you know, they want something, they want a child or they want a better career or they want to know where, what direction to go. There's a million questions and sometimes they're deep mysteries like what happened to my auntie or, you know, it, it, it might be um, something quite simple like I've lost my keys, you know, anything in between. It can be this vast array of questions. So that's the purpose of that is often just give people a, a sort of sense that someone can see who they are and that there is a real spiritual being in there and that, you know, you have a purpose and that it makes sense and everything you've done up to now makes sense and uh, the things that you need to do to help you go forward, I can suggest things and the guides uh, that I talk to help with that. They might sort of, we do a body scan and look through your body and tell you how you've, you know, the systems are all working. Um, I can look into your childhood and your childbirth experience of when you were born. I can look into your family relationships. I can look into your financial attitudes, your relationship with the future, all of that. And the other reason why people come to me is the psychology part, the therapy that I developed. And that is to help people shift deep and stubborn patterns in themselves. Um, and, you know, to get healing as well, because sometimes those patterns are causing them illness or they're causing them repeated behaviors that they want to change, like addictions and it's pretty hard to crack those things, you know. There's a lot of techniques out there and they don't always work. So the kinesthetic work helps people change their patterns and programs by releasing them out of your unconscious. And um, it's actually quite easy. It's <laughs> We make it really hard, but it's not hard. It's easy. How, how do we make it hard, you know? You said it's easy. And then what is the kinesthetic process? Okay, well, how we make it hard is because... There's a, there's a huge body of a kind of complex psychological reasoning in the world, isn't there? I mean, through Hollywood, through the psychodrama of the advertising industry and the media, through the whole global media structure, through politics, the complexity of our psychology is phenomenal. 
and we we all think that we're victims of it you know we all think that we're victims of um you know the destruction and degradation and deprivation and the unconscious problems in family dynamics and the politics and you know we we kind of are but we lost sight of a couple of really simple things that we were born with and one of them is the capacity to feel and to be in the present and one of them is choosing not to be sort of dragged away by our mental habits and mind you know and that's very buddhist it's very sort of spiritual but it's also very straightforward and simple the fact is we just think too much and thinking often leads to anxiety and unsolvable problems and we tend to think everything in terms of oppositions and problems and you know we have to solve problems and we have to you know it's all a, a narratives that are not necessarily exactly right um, a lot of the narratives we live by and um, we don't even need narratives we don't we actually just need to be ourselves and people think that's impossibly hard but it's impossibly simple it's really simple so before you 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 um, explain what the kinesthetic process is you mentioned that we live through a narrative of opposites which tends to be very dominant you know in politics there's party A versus party B, men versus women, uh, women are doing this, men are doing that. Um, you know, so it <laughs> seems that our whole life, good and bad, God versus the devil, uh, white and black. So it seems that our life does look like it's opposites, but you're saying it's not opposites. So how do you think then beyond opposites? Well, that's a beautiful question, and it's one of the great spiritual questions of the ages, you know. It's what the all the great traditions have tried to answer and said to you that duality and separation is the problem, and that we think in terms of all those things, opposites, black, black and white, night and day, good and evil, and we create narratives around trying to win and to beat them down, which, to, to be honest, are old-fashioned masculine narratives based in hierarchical thinking that are about warriorship and control and dominance. And, and there's not necessarily a feminist uh, thread here. I'm just saying that separation causes problems, whereas union and inclusiveness and holism causes to healing and, and process to happen, you know, rather than this constant... And the media takes this huge advantage of this narrative by striking fear into your heart and making you have this narrative about what's wrong and then trying to find a solution and then selling it to you. It's like, you know, it's like this huge satire, isn't it, really, when you think about it. But, if, really I look at it, but if I look at it, media doesn't really give a solution. They just say, like, things are burning, fear, fear, fear. And there is then really no... Break. Pardon? Then there's an ad break, and that's your solution yeah. because consumerism is supposed to be the answer. You, know, you buy yourself into the party or you buy yourself into, you know, status or you buy yourself into some form of satisfaction that actually doesn't ever satisfy you. True, true. And, and you mentioned uh, qualities of, uh, you, you mentioned uh, separation, especially the uh, the... Uh, male qualities that are, uh, you know, associated with uh, separation, hierarchy. Would you mind just talking a little bit more about that? What are the, uh, you know, positive and negative aspects of uh, male-led uh, uh, organizations or the patriarchy? And even uh, for feminism or matriarchy, 
Uh, what are the positive and negative elements? Well, I think this is something that um, could be misunderstood. I don't think that anything's bad. In the end of the day, we just do what we do. Sociology, you know, it's just life. It happens and we study it and we learn from it. But I see it as being um, problematic that the world has been ruled by men for thousands of years and that, uh, you know, that actively suppressed women, not, not because it's us and them and what about me. It's not about that. I'm just saying there has to be balance in everything and there has to be um, equality and surrender and embracing of each other, not fighting to stand on top of someone else's head so you can get where you want to go. And adopting those techniques, it works. It gives you wealth. It gives you power. But eventually it will fail. It does fail. And people will always be fighting you for it. People will always climb up the ladder and try and whack you down because they want that power. You know, that's hierarchical thinking. And a lot of corporations, a lot of, you know, countries, uh, the constitutions even, you know, uh, politics is built on the same principles. And we know that, you know, the positive side of that is that when power is at its best, it can be about illumination. It can be about forging a new way. It can be about breaking down obstacles. It can be about creating solutions. It can be about um, sharing power. It can be about all sorts of amazing things. And in the traditional, well, if you want to think about Carl Jung and the way he spoke about it, it was really about the, that the male illuminates the path and shines a light on things. That's one of the things he said amongst many. And that's, so that's the positive, you know, that, I mean, imagine a world where we could complement each other's gifts. And for the feminine, I think, you know, as I was telling you, that the male, the feminine side, when it's unconscious and negative, can be backstabbing and, and secretive and bitchy and hidden and uh, amorphous, hard to define, hard to, and that's another quality of conscious masculinity is, capacity to find things, to make them clear and structure them. Um, and then the feminine unconscious can be about jealousy and bitterness and, and clinging to things and, you know, and the positive side is incredible. It's why African families have persisted for thousands of years and maintained their integrity, well, up till now, and why, um, you know, the women will continue to always produce life and create life so they will always try to protect life and um, also they are intuitive or you know I don't stereotype women or men but I just think that women tend to be more intuitive because of the way they're raised and so that they can be um, understand the hidden things the mysterious things and bring them to light you know there's so much complementarity there but it doesn't always get seen that way you know so um that's a small part of the, the conversation. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. And in fact, from what you've also um, shared, I think another positive of uh, you know the female aspect is the glue to keep the family together. Uh, mm, absolutely. Yes, and uh, wow, I, I really do appreciate you just giving us a small taste of the you know, positive and negative characteristics that could be attributed to patriarchy or matriarchy because I feel it's just the negative aspect that is spoken of. So at least when someone talks about 
you know, the negative aspects, it's easy to identify them. But when you talk about the positive aspects also, it's like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I've been experiencing collaboration. I've been experiencing clarity. And uh, wow, now that you've mentioned that, um, I think I would love to have this conversation in two ways. Um, because I notice these are the building blocks of life, you know, one from the parents or the adult perspective and the kids. Because, uh, you know, from what you've mentioned, um, uh, it seems how we experienced our life as children, our parents have given us both strengths, but they've also given us limitations that maybe we're unable to articulate. Um, so even as we get into that, uh, please just uh, unpack a little bit about the kinesthetic process because you mentioned uh, several things that I just want clarity on. So let's just start with the kinesthetic process. Okay, what is it? Well, and just walk us through, <laughs> yes. At the moment, the way it's structured is it's 10 sessions. It's one hour each session. So it's a, a kind of combination of a training and a breakthrough process. So my idea was to create something that people wouldn't have to go back for all the time because I really dislike that materialistic approach of a lot of spiritual teachers who just keep trying to on-sell you more books and more products and more workshops and courses. And I love selling my stuff, but, you know, it should be that you get the stuff and then you move on to something better for yourself. And so I wanted something that people would learn that would last them for their lifetime. So it's a, it's a way of being rather than just a change. You know, you go through the change, but then you've adopted a new way of being. And so I'll explain that as we go. But So that was one reason. And the other reason was to um, give you something that was driven by you, because I feel like a lot of processes and practices and therapies and uh, healings and stuff are all about the healer doing something to you or the teacher doing something to you and um, establishing a context which says there's something wrong with you that I can fix. Well, kinesthetic process is nothing to do with that. It's about um, just showing you something you can do that allows you to be able to process something so that it doesn't need fixing. It goes away by itself. And you'll see how that works. Um, and then the third thing was to be able to not create a dogma because there's a, a process inside the process that prevents that, that stops you from making dogma out of it. There's no dogma there. It's not a system that you have to learn that if you break a rule, you can't do it or, you know, blah, blah. It's just something that's inherent in you. It's a natural thing that belongs to you that you've always had that's just been suppressed and denied in you growing up. So once you learn it, you're driving it. You're always driving it. At the, in this 10 sessions, I'm prompting and I'm giving you some context and I'm maybe suggesting a few things, but you're driving it. I'm just showing you the practice. And so that's the... That's the sort of um, parameters of it. And then I, I kind of worked out that, uh, you know, when I'd been through a lot of change, I'd lost my career as a singer and I, I'd um, lost relationships and I'd had problems being a single parent and a lot of stuff went on for me and I realized that all the work I'd done on myself hadn't really changed me. I'd been to do a lot of work. That's what we do here. We sort of run off to therapists and teachers and psychics and workshops and, you know, and then we find that, you know, I, th I thought that my friends, my clients, myself, we hadn't really changed enough. Um, 
And I often wondered, why is the unconscious so impossible to reach? Why, do, why were we sold this idea by the um, 19th century psychiatrists or 20th century psychiatrists that, this, that the unconscious was hidden and uh, somewhere where you can't access it? There's a certain logic to that because you, you do need to be able to protect yourself from trauma and you, PTSD and you know, the way they treat it, it shows that that's true, that you have a way of hiding things from yourself that protects you, but eventually it comes back to bite you anyway and you still have to deal with it. So um, I thought, well, it doesn't make sense to me if I was to sort of think about the human design that we have, which is extraordinary, extraordinary. That human design, why would, the, why would whoever designed it, whether it was us or collaborating with God or something, we designed a system whereby we couldn't access our deepest problems and our deepest patterns. What sense does that make? It doesn't make sense to me. So I thought, well, I bet it's simple. I bet it's really simpler than what we think. And we've just been sold a pup. You know, this whole deal about you can't get in there. You have to buy therapy for 20 years. I don't agree with it unless you've got really, really, really serious problems. Yes. What do you agree with then? What is, how should things be? Uh, what do you mean exactly? Because you said we've been heavily suppressed you know where we get to find our answers from external and like you said that's the reason why we interact with all of these people who are subject matter experts from spiritual healers spiritual gurus uh, spiritual leaders to uh, psychology mental health practitioners but you're saying it shouldn't be that way no, I think there's a, at this point in time in history, there is a really important place for every therapist, every teacher, every practitioner. So I wouldn't diss any of that. But I'm just saying that I think that we've missed the point. There's a very much simpler and easier way to do things. And the other way, the other part of it is that we need to raise children completely differently to the way we were raised. But because of our conditioning, we don't know that. We don't understand it. So I, I, I've, part of the process is about recognizing that there's an unconscious family soup that we live in, that's, that's sort of a pre-masticated bowl of energy from multiple previous generations of unresolved feeling, unresolved love, unresolved desire, unresolved everything, you know, the uh, kind of unrequited creativity and, and uh, drives and all sorts of things. Um, and those get passed down in the in the etheric or the environment that, that we're raised in. And sometimes it's obvious, like it's words or behaviours, but other times it's more hidden. Stuff we don't even know about our ancestors. But if you really dig and you find out, it can surprise you how some of your traits, the, some of your problems, were the same problems. Anyway, um, we don't... I mean, family systems theory, which is an, a, um, a sort of um, school of psychology, works on actually actively looking at the family genome, the tree, the family tree, and, and processing everything on a really conscious level. That's not what we do, but it's sort of included in it in a sense because that unconscious family programming is inculcated in our behavior as parents. We suppress children exactly the same way we were suppressed by teaching them that it's not okay to experience their feelings. So I'm not talking about self-expression. We went through that in the 60s and it didn't really help anybody. Um, well, maybe it did, but <laughs> um, I'm talking about experiencing one's experience and not uh, controlling and narrativizing it and categorizing and analyzing it, which is what pop psychology has taught us to do. 
And um, parents teach their children to self-control, self-regulate. Some part of that's absolutely essential. We can't get around that. We have to teach kids to self-regulate and they have to teach themselves. But some part of it's over-anxious, over-compensating, over-suppressing children's experience. So they don't learn enough from their own experience and they don't get to experience it, so it's stored. And of course, you know, my understanding from my own experience and from working with people is that it's stored in the body. Everything that's passed down and then everything that you haven't been allowed to have um, to fulfill. And it doesn't mean that you weren't given an ice cream when you were three and therefore you need to spit the dummy and scream your lungs out. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about just very raw things like trust and um, being allowed to learn from pain or mistakes or, and also find your own way through relationships. There's a lot of stuff, a lot, a lot. So okay. it's highly uh, controlled and regulated, and by the time you get to school, you've, you've internalized that whole system that you learned as a child at home, and I call it the dollhouse, and we carry it off to school and we try to fit people into it, you know. What is so, the dollhouse? Well, I, I kind of thought up this thing where I thought when, when someone's about three or four and they're becoming cognitive, they're starting to try to find an identity, um, even at that age they're trying to find a place in the family, a place to help them survive the family. You know, as you know, some of that can be brutal, some of it's quite normal and some of it's very loving. But we all have to find a way to survive our family dynamics and so we need a place and a role. So we um, look around and we observe the behaviour of the interrelationships of the family. We don't have an intellect developed well enough to notice that, but we intuitively see it and we react to it. And judging by what everyone else is doing, we find a position for ourselves. And sometimes that's designated by culture, it's tribal, like firstborn, middle, you know, whatever, all that. Um, but mostly it's just whatever's taken. Someone else is already doing the rebel bit. Someone else is doing the nurturing bit, you know. So you, you find a place. But it's not just um, stereotypes again. It's, it's also about what you've brought with you into this life. It might be your karma, your choices, your soul's needs. Um, so you, you pick a role and you find a way to create a behavioral agenda around the role. So, you know, if you're the family nurturer, if something goes wrong, you automatically step up. Whereas another child in that family won't they'll not, they'll step down and walk away, you know. So you have an agenda for behavior that always tells you how to behave, some of which might be wonderful, but some of it's automatic. You don't really think you have a choice because you've been doing it all your life. Um, and there's many things that make that up. Like it's not just the obvious stuff. It's subtle too. Like somebody, um, there's another part to it, which is also the seesaw. I call the seesaw is when you are taught that when you're doing things for others, you're making everyone else happy, you're comfortable, and that's good. And when you're doing things for yourself, you tend to be not making everyone else happy. So you're on the other side of the seesaw and you're not feeling comfortable there either. So you kind of wobble between them throughout your whole life. You know, you kind of go backwards and forwards trying to please others, trying to please yourself. And, you know, if there's a question in your life, like, am I gay or do I really want to be an artist or would I be better off as a singer or, you know, do I perhaps not want to have a child or things like that that are a little bit different or unconventional, 
then you might find yourself in deep water struggling with a seesaw, you know, trying to please everyone else, especially in stricter cultures, um, and not being allowed to please yourself. And your agenda for behavior will dictate how you do that. That's wow. complex. I expect you to have to take all that in right now. There's a lot to it, isn't there? Yes. Um, and I appreciate that you've opened that conversation. I'd like us to explore it a little bit in a way that we can grasp it because you've mentioned so i'd like us to explore i know you've already started a little bit like uh, what are three mistakes parents make in their attempt to raise uh, to bring you know structure discipline to the home you already mentioned you know about self-regulation but i'd like you just to make it more practical for a parent who you know give us some examples of how this looks like and you mentioned how children adapt, like becoming the natural or becoming the rebel. You know, I think maybe there's, you know, those who tune out and they don't participate. So just, uh, you know, uh, tell us maybe three mistakes parents uh, do and maybe three ways that, that kids try and cope with whatever their parents do, you know, just to maybe bring more awareness about a behavior that a parent may be trying to, do their best, but they don't realize the harm that they're doing for the children. Well, I'd like to remind people that there's a thing in psychology called the good enough parent. So it's really important that we always affirm that people try to do their best and there's no wrong, unless you're an abuser or something, you know, there's no wrong. Uh, you're doing what you think is right. And, you know, so it's not a critique, it's just an observation that when you overly control children and you don't let them experience the boundaries of their possibilities, then they will grow up limiting themselves to please you. Um, and that's something, an example might be simple. I mean, somebody who's incredibly athletic as a child wants to climb trees all the time and, and the mom or the dad is terrified of heights or frightened of breaking their leg because they did that when they were a kid or their parents were very controlling or something like that. So you're telling the kid, don't do that, don't do that. You know, and uh, another parent might allow the child to explore and experience that and that child might go on to be an athlete or a very physical person who loves sports and does sport. But the child who's limited in that might turn out to be afraid of things and, and not be able to express themselves physically or, you know, there's a million variations on this theme. So maybe watch, you, watch the way that you limit children and ask yourself why. Is this reasonable? Is it okay? I mean, surely um, it's okay to at least make some mistakes. You know, you don't obviously let a kid walk along a cliffside, but you, you let them make little journeys into life and find out. And, and there's the other, I guess another thing would be um, there was a school of thought for a long time that you absolutely had to control the way and how much children ate. And you, in the West anyway, I don't know about in Africa, it was probably very different, but where, where I grew up and in the West, it was always um, eat everything on your plate because the children in Africa are starving. <laughs> and, you know, don't you dare waste any food and, you know, you'll go hungry and you'll be hungry later and all those things, which is all wrong. And um, don't let wrong? children... How is don't it wrong? Let children, because if you teach children that they have to eat, they will eat when they're not hungry. And when they eat when they're not hungry, they develop obesity and problems that go with that. They develop comfort eating. They'll eat to comfort themselves or to comfort you. They'll eat food that they don't even feel 
write about that might even be allergic to. You know, there's a million reasons why you don't force kids to eat. You give them a choice. You know, they kind of came up with the theory that it let them graze. You know, you put out a lot of food on the table and they can pick what they like. And people have started doing that and it's actually much more successful. Children do go through incredible picky phases where they won't eat this and they won't eat that and they'll only eat those things. But if you let them do it, and you give them a bit of time, they generally come back around to eating everything else. They just, the more you force them, the more they're going to feel sick about it. They might associate nausea with eating. They might associate choking with eating. You don't know. You know, you've, I've seen kids do that. Um, and also the tidiness. You know, people expect children to eat tidily, to learn how to eat cleanly and tidily. But now in the West, whatever that is, people let their kids make a huge mess when they eat. They let them throw food and mash it everywhere and get it all over themselves. And some part of me goes, oh, God, <laughs> that's terrible. But I can see the logic in it. I can see that if you let children play with food, they get to discover a lot more about it, what feels right, what, what tastes right, what smells right. You know, because you wouldn't force a cat to eat or a dog, would you? You wouldn't shove its face in the plate and force it into the, you know, a dog or a cat will eat what feels right to them. And they'll vomit up what doesn't. And kids do that too. They vomit. You know, they just vomit everywhere if they don't feel like the food's sitting right in the tummy. Anyway, there's a lot of things like that that we over-control because of our own fears and our own upbringing. And then we don't realize it's unconscious behavior. And the kids pick up the message that they have to please us, so they'll do it. And then they'll not feel good about it. And they'll make mistakes because of it. And wow. then, so that's, that's two things. Yeah, that's powerful. You mentioned that because I notice in a lot of, uh, you know, videos online, a lot of people will say, stop being a people pleaser, but they don't realize, you know, what you've just shared. You've actually shown, I've realized that's the mechanics of being a people pleaser where you had to please your parent to survive because if you don't, there'll be repercussions. Yeah, you're not doing it because you like to do it. You're doing it because that's the way you learned how to survive. And most people won't change how they learned how to survive unless they're given an alternative, a new way to be, a different way to understand all that and to be able to let it go. And they don't realize how much it controls them. You know, like all sorts of things control us, you know, diets and belief systems about body image and how you're supposed to be as a woman, how you're supposed to be as a man, you know. It's all absurd. It's all about selling stuff. It's not, not really anything to do about feeling and experiencing your life as if you want to fulfill, you know, your purpose and be yourself and be what you can be. It's more about doing what you think everyone else thinks you should do. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's really crazy. Wow, wow. Yes, and you're mentioning a third thing. Well, there's many. Um, just yes. try and pick one. Sure. Um, <clears throat> oh, maybe that thing about, you know, when you're at school and someone picks on you, you know, you're not supposed well, some people teach you to fight back and punch the other guy, and other people teach you to turn the other cheek and walk away. And somehow I'm not sure either of those are okay. Um, perhaps children would find their own way if they were left on their own. That's the psychology books say don't interfere. Uh, let them work it out themselves. Not not if it's bad bullying, but amongst siblings, for instance, you're not supposed to interfere if they're bullying each other or mucking around with each other. But um, I think uh, behavioral stuff like how to sort out relationships at school and with siblings is stuff that we also get too much involved with. 
um, as I said, sometimes you have to intervene. With my children, I've definitely had to intervene at times and I don't regret it because doing that means they know that I'm sticking up for them. They know that there are standards and principles involved that they have to respect and other people have to respect. And so there's a case for, you know, for some interference and intervention, but there's also a case for letting children tell you how they feel, um, express the, the problem that happened, where it started, what happened for them, um, why it happened maybe, they might know, they might not know. And what's at play, you know, because kids can't tell you what's at play unless you give them space to do it. Like they won't come out and say, well, my friend has Adidas runners and I can't afford them and I'm really upset because of that and they, get, they beat me up. They're not going to say that. They're just going to say, so-and-so beat me up, you know, so you get it all wrong, they get it all wrong. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's underlying everybody's problems. But it's like we don't have to actually know everything. We only have to choose to feel things. And when we choose to feel them, the um, uh, emotional experience that generates our behaviours changes. <clears throat> now that's the crux of kinesthetic and a lot of other therapies, but I feel like it really works if you can understand that basic principle. Instead of thinking about your problems, you need to feel them. And how can we feel our problems? Because a lot of the times parents will say, don't cry or why are you feeling sad? Don't be sad, be happy. Uh, so really growing up, we don't get a chance to process. We're told don't, don't, don't. So when you're saying feel, I think it's a little bit strange and I'm not surprised why we're not able to feel because feeling stuff especially when it's not uh, positive feelings uh, doesn't feel nice especially in the body so well, that's the first thing mm -hmm. sorry yeah so go ahead and please yeah unpack that how do how does that affect both the parenting the parents and even the kids when your emotions are being suppressed you're like you know don't shout or don't express anger uh, well obviously expressing anger means something what do the emotions mean when they're trying to express something and how does the parents suppressing the expression of that emotion hurt both sides because i i can imagine it's tough for an adult to experience a negative emotion you know around you so hence the, the easiest way to try and control it is stop being angry or go into the corner so you can let that negative emotion get out so i don't have to deal with it well the first thing that we learn is that you know that what we were saying earlier about separation there's good and bad you know there's no shades in between and you know that's not true um and we're trained to think right from day one that expressing or experiencing your feelings is not good because somebody else is triggered by it you know basically that's what i was saying about the soup if you you're in the unconscious family soup and you've got a baby that screams all the time you're in a complete nervous wreck and you spend your half your time calling your mother-in-law and the other half the time doing dr google you know it's it's anxiety and fear and pain and sleeplessness and all that and we're triggered by it so we suppress them we try to shut them down we try to teach them self-control we try to control them and there's a million ways in which we do that so we're teaching them right from the beginning that it's bad to feel this and it's good to feel that and most of that's about making me happy not making you happy <laughs> um look I put it in an extreme way, but I, and I know there are shades. I've got five kids. I know exactly how complex it is. So 
But um, one of the things I discovered when I taught myself kinesthetic and then I started trying to apply it everywhere in my life, I realized that I had to stop suppressing my kids. And it was hard because there were behaviors going on that were difficult. There was bullying, a little bit of bullying. There was some acting out where one kid was a real drama queen. There was um, a kid who suppressed all her own feelings without being asked to, to, to please me. And there was another kid who was angry all the time. And I had to try and sort of stop trying to juggle it all and control everybody and shut them all down and let them have some space. So I had to work with each one individually and figure out how to do that. And one of the ways I did it was by processing my own reaction. As soon as I processed my own reaction, it wasn't so hard to deal with theirs because they were just triggering me. And I call that the five o'clock mum, you know. Five o'clock comes around. If, I, if you're like me, you had four kids under 10, you had a husband or a partner who wasn't around much, uh, who, who, or if he was, he was half asleep, and who wasn't you know, hands-on with the kids. And um, you are exhausted because you've been trying to be a mother and trying to be a career woman and trying to juggle money and trying to handle school. And all the kids' needs are phenomenal. They're huge. You know, Kids need so much. They need full-on hands-on attention 24-7. And then, you know, you think without really noticing it, you feel like, what about me? Well, you know, who am I? Am I chopped liver? You know, am I just like this thing walking around fulfilling everyone else's needs? And you start to feel frustrated and you start to feel deprived and you feel angry with your ex or husband or whatever he is. And you feel and you start to project that anger outwards because you're not taking responsibility and processing it. So it becomes smacking or shouting or turning you know, just turning everything off and shutting the kids down or walking away or doing something. And, and a lot of women around here where I live take drinks. They drink. Five o'clock, they start shoving back the wine. Um, and I thought, okay, five o'clock, mum, this is what you need to do. You need to just stop. Go to the blooming toilet if you have to and sit there and just feel how you feel in your body. And if you do that and you start to surrender and experience that release, what happens is you recognize, yeah, I feel like a kid who's been ignored myself. I feel like no one's looking after me. I feel like this is all too much and I'm failing at it and I feel guilty. Um, I really want a drink, but I'm not going to have one. Just let me feel this, feel it, feel it, feel it. And after a while, you calm down, you start to feel okay, and then you can go out there and each one of them can be dealt with individually. So I might take the angry kid into her room and close the door and say, okay, you can get angry. Just don't hit anybody. Don't hit me. You can swear, you can shout, you can stomp your feet, you can scream, you can punch the bed. Um, uh, but you have to try and feel this. And even little kids can do this. And, and once I started to let them do that, it would work its way through their system quite well. It wouldn't end up as being a fight or an act of violence or drama. It would just be something that they had processed. And it really worked. And, and sometimes if two of them were fighting, I'd force them to sit down at a table opposite each other and be silent and stare at each other. <laughs> and that was fantastic because they realized what they were doing <laughs> and they start to cry. They'd cry. It was beautiful. And they'd just let go and everything would be fine. And then they'd hug and they'd walk away, you know. It's just So, you know, we don't have to be monsters. We don't have to shut them all down all the time. We don't have to ever hit them, ever. We don't have to shout. We can just process our own feelings and then we find ourselves to be much more resourceful. And we find ourselves to be knowing that if you're not getting your needs met, you go and get them met later and you can get them met. Find a way. Find another partner or change your life in some way or just don't drink and shout at the kids, you know.
<laughs> I hope that was helpful. Wow, it was very helpful and it's very insightful because um you see these are parts of life as children we don't see and recognize and by the time you become now a parent you have no idea how to do things on purpose um how to process because those questions you you shared you know how does this feel feeling the lack of support that's that's groundbreaking for me and uh, you know are there any other questions you could share that would help someone process their emotions because that's something you said someone to take responsibility for their life and process what they're going through and well that's what the kinesthetics for it's to systematically do that from go to woe so to take everything in your life that doesn't work and talk about it until you start feeling it feel it until you can feel it in your body surrender to the experience and it comes up and it processes it comes out of your system it breaks through for you you don't even have to know what it's all about because knowing is a gift that comes with it but it doesn't always some people just feel everything and that's it they don't get the knowledge about why i'm like this or what happened because when you go into your body and feel your feelings you often get past uh, memories from childhood popping up and situations showing you why you got the way you got but you don't have to get that mm. it's just one of the byproducts so wow. yeah that's that's kind of how you do it but i mean you need to be trained but on the other hand the basic idea is there for everybody just to take it and try it you know next time you're upset angry uncertain um confused emotional whatever just stop feel it allow yourself to have it they're just feelings they're not bloody arrows and they're not poison they're just feelings we're trained to think of them as dangerous they're not they're just experiences and if you choose to accept them as they are and feel them in your body your body shows you what's going on but it also lets up the energy that you've used to store all those old memories wow. so then you're self cleaning out simplifying you, you you just made me remember uh one of the after effects the consequences of people pleasing you know teaching the kid to people please is when you become an adult sometimes you're afraid to compete in the workplace would you mind giving us some other examples how this can manifest as an adult uh because you mentioned that a lot of social organizations um uh, play that role of having to please us well i think what i was saying was that um when we go to work we often take the unconscious program from childhood with us the dollhouse we take it to work and we stick it in the workplace and we expect people to fit into it and we we form cabals and power groups and we hustle and we compete or we don't compete or we hide or we do this or we do that but we're basically doing what we did growing up without knowing it um and then that will determine how we go at work we'll either be hurt or bullied or waylaid or sidelined or we'll climb up the top and on top everybody else and get somewhere or we'll you know there's i mean that's that's a simplified view but um so the fact that we've got this unconscious agenda for behavior which was our modus operandi for survival growing up is essential to us we don't even know it's there it's how we think our personality is we think we're this kind of person oh we're just this kind of person but we're not necessarily that kind of person at all we might be another kind of person we don't even recognize yet and processing that stuff releasing the unconscious childhood program that we designed for ourselves to survive the family 
means that we can be adults. It's, it's called individuation, where you become yourself at least enough to feel that you don't have to act out your unconscious dramas from childhood. But a lot of people are still competing with siblings in, their, in the workplace unconsciously or with bosses because it's a father figure or it's a mother figure, uh, competing with somebody in, in their imagination. It's not even real. Um, some people sabotage other people at work because they, uh, they're deeply into survival. They don't understand anything else. They think that's the only way to survive. There's so many things that we don't need to do that we do that just dominate our lives and take away all our joy and we don't know that we're doing them. Would you mind sharing some? I, I bet you've heard of a bunch of stuff when your clients come and talk to you. What are some of the things that pull people back that they sabotage themselves and they don't realize? Maybe just share three. You know. Well, I kind of just did, you know, talking about how you might play up to a father figure in the office thinking that he's your father at some unconscious level uh, or you might sabotage him because you're always trying to get away from him as a child. You might have been an abuser or a, a violent or a drunk. You know, you might have felt terribly helpless around your parent and felt that you couldn't do anything right. You know, if that's the case, you might become a bungler. You know, there, there are ways in which you express yourself at work that are so about who you are as a child and you try not to be. We, we kind of are aware of it but we just don't know how to change it. We might go into work and be afraid to compete, like you were saying, because you're a pleaser. And you don't even sit down and think, what would be the consequences if I didn't please anybody? You don't think, there aren't any consequences. It's all in my head. You know, I don't have to actually answer to anybody. This is my life. You know, why don't I do something that I want to do for my own sake? And who cares what other people think as long as I'm responsible and caring and sensible and I'm not actively harming anybody I can be myself you know I can compete it's healthy wow wow that's that's very impactful and I know we've spoken about the workplace but now I see even how this manifests in uh, relationships with men and women that I think has not been really explained properly by the media it's normally just said you know women saying this man is not stepping up or you know we just hear that yeah. women to say yeah i left him because he's not uh, handling his responsibility he doesn't know what to do in a in a relationship but uh it seems you've added a little bit more dimension apart from the workplace examples how does this manifest in male female relationships constantly because um, first of all, we're taught that when something happens, it's happened to us. It's not because we had a response to it. Um, we don't recognize that if we are allowed to have our feelings, even though they're not important, we would have been able to process something and let it go. But because we don't do that, we blame somebody else. We, we think it's happened to us. So women are really good at this. They're very, very good at it. And they spend a lot of time talking to each other about it. And I feel like a bit of a traitor, but I did it myself for years, so I understand it. You get together with other women and you bitch about men and you constantly bemoan the fact that they don't do this and they don't do that. And you never sit there and say, well, I created this relationship. I'm participating in it. I chose him and he chose me and it's for a reason. I can change it or I can leave it. People don't say that. They don't say, oh, well, I've got a choice here. I can change it or leave it, you know. They sit there and carry on for years and then they create circumstances where they have to leave or they have to divorce or they have an affair or they do something because they won't take responsibility for what's going on for them. 
And if you do, um, often it's something that you just don't know how to get your needs met, you don't know how to talk to somebody, you can't communicate, or you feel oppressed by the other person when in fact it was your dad who did it, not your, you know, not your husband. There can be a million reasons, but there's a lot of unconscious drama in relationships that can be solved by talking, by feeling, by choosing to take responsibility for how you feel. And then when you've done that, you can see clearly what the guy's doing or what the woman's doing and what you're doing because you know a lot of the time the boundaries are all blurred because we don't take responsibility wow would you mind then sharing um just for us to start understanding this uh process of feeling it's like uh you know we know the alphabet of of of, of words that we can speak words uh, what's the alphabet of emotions you know what are three things that men are doing wrong that they can um let me not say correct, but they can learn from, I guess, their lack of uh, expressing themselves. And also, what are three mistakes women are doing and what can they do? Well, we're all not trained in the language of emotion because we're not allowed to have them. So maybe learning that, learning how to experience your own feelings and then to communicate it. Not saying, you made me feel like this. Not saying, you do this to me, but saying, when you do that, I feel like this. Uh, and I'm aware that that's my stuff, my responsibility, uh, but maybe it would help you to know that. So you could maybe do it a little differently. Or, uh, But even that, you know, just start with yourself always. And for men, they need to learn how to communicate. They need to learn how to talk about feelings because one of the greatest complaints women have all over the world is men don't talk about their feelings. And often I think it's because they don't know what their feelings are anyway. Mm. Uh, they haven't given them the time. And whereas women think they're giving time to their emotions, but they're more or less just bemoaning what's, what they're feeling rather than actually feeling it. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but, you know, women love to, to feel stuff, but they feel it on a certain level, like the acceptable emotions, like resentment and guilt and shame and uh, anger and stuff, but they don't actually get deeper than that and process stuff so that it goes and leaves them and uh, they don't get beyond those stuff that it's, society gives you permission to act out, like the drama of it. So Hollywood, all that stuff. Yeah, so so I remember something you mentioned that, uh, which I'd like you to expound on a little bit more, is uh, that when men and women have conflict, it's the battle of the dollhouses. And so, <laughs> and so you know, what does that mean? Because, uh, and also, what you just shared right now, um, if a man does not express himself, I notice, isn't that because as a child you had to appease mom because mom would be complaining, you're doing this, you're doing that, so you would be the good boy not to offend the female figure. And so I'm not surprised that if men express their feelings, we've even seen a whole bunch of examples where if a man was to express emotion, you know, women are saying men need to communicate more and what have you, but when we communicate failing or vulnerability or the feeling, um, we don't rise up to the expectation. Yeah, and I'd like you to talk about expectation. Then we are we, we get a negative response. Oh, how could you? You see, you're weak. So that's why I would keep quiet and hold my feelings back. Um, yeah, well, I think that that's one scenario, that scenario where, um, you know, your little boy has to be good for his mother, 
There's another one where a child has been beaten by the dad or where the child has been abandoned or neglected by a father. There's a million of them. So it depends on what happened to you, depending on what you do in that. But yeah, that, that's a lot about behavior, good behavior. But it's also, um, you know, men are bro brought up not to be allowed to feel anything much. You know, they're br brought up to shut down their feelings much more than women. So it's it's even harder for them to learn to experience their emotions and then communicate them if necessary. Um, but the men I've, I'm working with at the moment are actually quite good at it. They just didn't know they were until they started to, to do it. Um, so it's, it's also about women giving men the space to do it. Like a lot of the time if a man doesn't answer back straight away, they get mad because a woman knows how she feels pretty quickly and a man just doesn't. He needs time and she doesn't give him time. Uh, she assumes that he's being obstinate or rude or something. Um, there's a lot of different permutations, but in my experience, all relationships can either be healed or broken, and sometimes they need to be broken. It's okay um, to let each other go, but one or the other by choosing to know yourself and understand what you're feeling. And it isn't about sort of indulging it at all. It's about just allowing what is to be until it goes. And when it goes, you're left with much clearer way of feeling about things. Like, uh, for instance, if, um, if, if someone's been angry all their life with their dad and they acted out in a marriage by beating the wife or something, and they process all that rage from childhood and it starts to leave them, they can then, um, they might feel a lot of shame too because of it. They might need to process all that. Then if they've done that, they can see that, you know, they've been very toxic and they need to, apologize and clean up their act and change their behavior and um, then they might then have a chance of having a happy relationship. Um, and if a woman's been sexually abused, which is incredibly common, incredibly common, um, she might grow up feeling um, manipulative towards men sexually or defensive or shut down, not orgasmic. There's many reasons why a woman might react to what's happened. And then that goes into the marriage and it becomes an issue and then you've got to process that. So a woman might have to process the fact that she was abused and she's never been able to deal with it. And once she's done that, you might have a chance in the relationship. But, you know, it's not the answer to everything, but it certainly gives a great deal more space to choose and to understand where you're at and what you can do. Wow, wow. That is so powerful to hear, giving the space to choose. And... I know that we can go, uh, you know, I'd love to go in depth into more of some of these things. But uh, right now, uh, I believe uh, you're being called by a judge to attend to uh, <laughs> on, on the opposite side of the world. But I'd li really like to thank you for, for your time today. I know this is just the, the end of part one. We're going to have part two where we'll, we'll unpack some more of the uh, negative aspects in society we see like corruption racism uh, i'd love to just unpack the the psychological side of that and yes if, if people want to find out uh, more about your work and would love to have a deeper conversation with you about this uh, kinesthetic process or any 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 other uh, processes uh, courses that you teach uh, how can they reach out to you Oh, well, um, WhatsApp, um, message me on WhatsApp, which is Australia, that's plus six one, and then the mobile number without the zero, I believe, so it's four five double one nine four nine double one. 
um, and the email address is liztreeoflife at gmail.com. Liztreeoflife. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody who's keen to start something or learn something. I'm very happy. My website is lizwaters.com.au, but it doesn't give you a huge amount of information, just a taste. So have a look at that. Maybe that'll help. All right. Thank you for sharing that. And if anything that you have heard during this conversation has uh, sparked your interest or you got an aha moment, I would love it if you could just share that in the comment section below. Or even, yes, please feel free to uh, go ahead and send me a tweet on Twitter. The, uh, my personal uh, Twitter handle is Opereta1, that's O-P-E-R-E-T-A-R-1. And the podcast uh, Twitter handle is Revenge F Gods. So please, would love to hear your feedback which points of this conversation really stood out to you? Uh, what would you love to be explored deeper uh, in this conversation to gain more clarity uh, so that uh, you can get the tools that you aren't taught by your parents, by school or society, so that you can live life intentionally. You can live life on the level that you desire and go forward. So thank you very much for your time, Liz. I appreciate you. Thank you, Andrew. Me too. <laughs> yes. And, and if you found this conversation helpful, please do share this with a friend, an enemy. Uh, you know, if you have your questions, please feel free. Yes. Uh, you can email me at uh, uh, andrew.opere at gmail. Or you can go ahead and email Liz. Or you can email revengeoftheforsakengods at gmail.com so that uh, we can have all your questions answered by Liz. All right. This has been the session of Revenge of the Forsaken Gods podcast. Thank you very much, Liv, uh, Liz, for being with me and with us. And uh, have a good day. You too. Thank you. Thank Bye. you.